Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. For this episode, I'm going to go through some interesting Patreon questions, uh, answer them in depth, and that will be it for this week. So the first one comes from Nikki, who writes, let's talk stickiness in dogs. I have a border collie who seems to have gone from a lunger to a looker. What I mean by that is when he sees motion, he slips into stare mode really quickly. I felt at first like he was doing better because, hey, almost no lunging and never lunge bark snapping anymore. But yikes, this stuck and stare thing is annoying, and I feel like it's very satisfying for him, so it's self-rewarding. Do you think it's just a phase in the development handling other dogs better? So Nikki, I don't know how old your dog is, but I will say that you're correct that this tends to be really satisfying for Border Collies. In fact, it's more common for them to stare than it is for them to lunge. And that certainly varies by lines and by type of border collie, but most of them uh, will default stare, although it's pretty normal for puppies to be lungy and then kind of maybe develop into staring and absolutely not, it will not go away on its own. In fact, it will only intensify if it is allowed to continue. So it's really important that your behavior modification plan for this does not involve staring or if the dog is allowed to stare then the dog is easily redirected so I'd be rethinking your whole plan you got rid of the lunging and the other behaviors that you didn't like that's fantastic that's totally true but now you've got another behavior that you're not sure you want and it's a tough one to get rid of so you are going to want to tackle that problem, perhaps in the exact same way that you tackled the lunging, because you did solve it. You just didn't specify what you wanted the new behavior to be. And so the most natural behavior emerged, which is staring. With sticky, stocky stuff uh, that Border Collies like to do, I find it helpful to teach them behaviors that are incompatible with sticky, stocky. So sit, uh, sit pretty, wave a paw, spin. These are things that the dog cannot do while they are in stock mode. And that's stock, S-T-A-L-K, not S-T-O-C-K is what I'm saying. So I would work on a lot of those behaviors. I would also work on just a huge repertoire of non-staring behaviors that you might be able to ask the dog to engage in instead. And best of luck. Next one comes from Jess, who writes, I recently spent the day stewarding at a local dog show, which made me realize that my coping mechanism thus far for being around stressed out dogs at shows and events is to simply not look at them. Being a steward, I actively watched over 70 teams in teams trial in rally and obedience. I had to pay attention to do my job and by the end of the day felt very, very drained. I am a dog trainer, so coming with my own set of control issues, it is extremely hard for me to see issues that I cannot help. 
issues that no one is calling issues. I felt so alone because no one else seemed to notice the things I was noticing. Being in the sport world, how do you protect your well-being while witnessing plain old bad handling, dogs who don't want to be there, and dogs who are giving all they have just to be punished? I'm not talking about newbies who are still trying to figure it all out. I'm talking about experienced handlers training like it's 1987. Oh, Jess, first of all, you have actually just um, explained why I don't steward at dog shows. And a lot of people get bristly when I say that, because how dare I, a person with a platform, say that I don't steward. I can tell you the last time I stewarded an obedience trial, it was about, I don't know, 10, 10, maybe 12 years ago. And I cried all night after. It was really horrendous for me. And I decided that I would never do it again. And I didn't do it again. I haven't done it since. When I go to dog shows, I am very much there for my dogs and for my dog's experience. And I really don't watch anybody else. I don't, I might watch a student or a friend, but in general, I am not watching the ring. I will work at agility trials, but I prefer jobs that allow me to not watch. Gate steward is probably my preferred job because I can pay attention to who's getting ready to go rather than watch the runs. If you're watching the run, you might miss um, what your job is as a gate steward. Uh, leash running, I can also do, but you're not going to find me working the table and you are, you might find me bar setting for sure, but it's not my favorite because I really do need to pay attention. And then I don't steward obedience trials and I love the sport of obedience. But like you just said, there's a lot of dogs really stressed. There's a lot of dogs trying really hard and getting punished for it. That's completely true. And what it is, Jess, is that this is a culture problem. The culture of obedience is changing, I think, but it's it's really slow going. And there's also a lot of certainly subpar training going on. I try to focus on watching the dogs that I want to watch. I try to positively reinforce the handlers who I think had a great run with their dog and great meaning not stressed. And you both looked like you had a good time, not necessarily a cue. In fact, the last obedience trial I went to, I went out of my way to compliment a handler whose dog had NQ'd for barking, but who had really, really beautiful work, really joyous work. And she didn't like that I told her she had a nice run because she was really pissed that she had NQ'd on barking. And that is fair, but it makes me feel better to go and compliment what it is that I like to see. So I would say, you know, after all this rambling, I would say that the way that I stay in dog sports while protecting my mental health is that I really limit the amount that I watch. I focus really hard on me and my dogs and what I need on that day and what they need on that day. I compliment and seek out people who I happen to notice having a nice time. And then I surround myself with like-minded people. And I have been in dog sports for over 20 years. And this has been an evolution for me, for sure. So thank you for volunteering for that show. It might've been the last time that you did it as well. Or maybe you can find jobs to do where you don't have to watch, where you're not required to watch. And then the last piece that I do think is glossed over a lot that has been really, really monumental for my mental health at dog shows has been to accept that everybody is actually doing the best that they know how to. Everyone is there doing their best on that day. And their best may look like it's 1987, but it is still their best today. 
And I can accept that everybody is at a different place on their path in dog sports and that I once was a person who maybe had a dog that wasn't enjoying himself that who was trying and getting punished for it. Like I could be that I could have been that person a long time ago. And it's important that we just, we decide to believe that everybody is doing their best. It is helpful to you, whether it's true or not. Okay. Next one comes from Kat who writes, um, we are eagerly awaiting the arrival of a new pup in a few weeks a breed I haven't had before. So watching Happy Crating and realizing that we have three different plastic crates, different sizes as pup grows, but all your pics and videos show wire crates. And now I'm wondering, should we have those? Uh, so we can add a blanket if needed for the more cave-like feel, but start with open wire crates. Do you have thoughts about this? So Kat, I don't think it matters a whole lot what you use. I do tend to use wire crates because they're more transportable, they're foldable. And I can definitely affect how much they're covered or how much they're open or not easier than with the plastic crates, but it is really just a preference issue. Uh, the plastic crates are certainly easier to clean if you have like a diarrhea blowout in them <laughs> with your puppy, which you might have, which happens. You can just take the plastic crate out and hose it. Whereas the wire crate, it's going to get into the wires. It's going to get into the crevices and you've got, it's speaking from experience. It can be a real nightmare to clean. So it really is up to you. I would not go out and buy a bunch of new crates for your puppy. If you've already got some wire ones. Okay. This one comes from Janine and this is an interesting one. So Janine says, is it okay to give up on training a particular dog? I have a two-year-old rescue border collie bitch who, after a year here, I cannot leash or restrain without creating fear and distress. She comes from an animal control, was penned with other border collies for her life before she came to me, and was, is probably multi-generation semi-feral. All dogs in the pens had heartworms and showed effects of malnutrition, and she's tiny. At this point, she comes inside when called, comes up for treats, and is enjoying life in my backyard. My other dogs are sport dogs, agility, obedience, rally, and more in competition or retirees. We go places and do things. It has taken so long, a year, to get Bo to the point of luring for touching. Right now, I'd be capturing her a couple times a year for vet visits and or boarding when I can't use my pet sitter. But the point of putting a leash on her is to take her out, and I don't even know that she would enjoy walks at first or at all. I'm thinking of just letting her be, or at least taking a break from trying to make active progress. But having a dog who spends the next decade just living in my yard doesn't seem quite right to me either. And Janine also added later that except for vet visits, I've let Bo set the pace, lots of consent, minimal pressure, and she lives inside, but the limit of her current daily life is my house and yard. Whew. Okay. First of all, Janine, um, this sounds like a nightmare situation. This poor dog was taken out of, and you're completely right that she's probably, uh, you should consider her semi-feral. You should consider her, um, not a border collie. You should consider her more like a wild animal. So more like a tamed fox or a tamed, um, coyote type of situation. Um, hopefully less dangerous, but that's more what she's like. She's not wired to, or hasn't been taught to have meaningful connections with people. She probably is happier outside and away from you. 
this is an animal, certainly I'm not on this case. So um, this isn't going to be a full plan for you. Your initial question was, is it okay to give up on training? And my answer to that is that the dog's welfare should be your number one priority, not your goals, but her welfare. If her welfare means that she can live in maybe even an indoor outdoor run, or she can come and go from your yard and your house and generally speaking, be happy, then that would be okay with me, especially if I could get her the vet care she needed with minimal stress. And I, I hope you're using a ton of sedation for that situation. I hope you're not trapping her and not sedating her for that. If a veterinary behaviorist has not been brought on board and if medication's not on board, I would definitely recommend talking to somebody about that. But also we do have to understand that there certainly are limits. There are limits to what we can achieve, especially with big bad situations like the one that Bo has come through. I would be, you mentioned luring her in for some touching. I would certainly not be touching her. Um, I wouldn't really be touching her at all unless she initiated, unless she touched me. I wouldn't try to teach her that touch equals food. I would not touch her unless she came in and touched me first. And I would be treating her like a zoo animal. I'd be treating her like a wild animal that lives with you. And I would teach her like a zoo animal. So I'd be teaching her in protected contact, meaning I'm teaching her to maybe go to certain stations for rewards, but I'm never going to touch you. I'm never going to try to put a leash on you. I'd be teaching her to maybe go into a crate so that I could put the crate in the car to take her to the vet, you know, things like that. I'd be looking into husbandry for wild animals that live captive, and I'd be treating her like that. That would be my recommendation, not knowing everything that I would need to know to make a full list of recommendations for you. Best of luck. Okay, this one comes from my friend Kim. She says, talk to me about how to deal with bitey puppies. I feel like you have to have, you have to have addressed this already and I'll be looking over past podcasts, but how do you address puppies that quickly get overstimulated and bite skin slash clothing, especially for puppies that will be growing up to do bite work and were bred to have the desire to bite all the things, especially when the biting is the best reward in and of itself. How do we address this while don't bite the person you're playing with, bite the thing instead? So you're at, you asked several questions here, Kim, because in your initial part of your question, in my mind, you weren't playing with the puppy, they were just biting. And then in the second half of the question, you're saying that there is a toy involved and the puppy is choosing your body instead of the toy. And I think those are different. So first of all, if you have a super bitey puppy, especially a breed that's been designed to be bitey, so like, let's pretend this is a little baby Malinois. It is your job to manage the environment so that that doesn't become a pattern of behavior. It is not your job to correct it. And it's not your job to, it's not your job to like try to shut it down or redirect it. It's your job to arrange your antecedents so that it's not happening. And there's going to be a period of time where like it is happening and it's best for you to do nothing about it or intervene in an environmental way rather than try to redirect because here's what people like to do puppy comes up puppy starts biting the person's leg or shoe or whatever person gets a toy and says here no bite this instead classic just reinforcing the behavior that you don't want to see ideally we have something to bite that's available 
during those times that I know the puppy wants to bite. So like, let's say it's morning and it's exciting and I'm coming out of the pen and I'm going outside. I'm going to stick a tug in your mouth so that we can play tug on the way outside. And then I'm going to do a big food scatter in the grass so that you are now eating the food and not biting me, things like that. So it's, it has to be about predict and prevent. It cannot be about redirect. So that's tip number one. It cannot be about redirect. It has to be about predict and prevent. And I would think about keeping the puppy out of that mindset that wants him to bite by doing a whole lot of food work, constant food work, lots and lots of eating instead of biting me. And if you're like, well, they don't want to eat, well, go back to the food episode because that has to be fixed in and of itself. But if the puppy's actually just is redirecting onto the human and not biting the toy when you're playing, that's about your toy play. You got to fix your toy mechanics. If you have poor mechanics, if your arm slash hand slash sleeve is a more attractive toy than the toy itself, that's about what you are making the toy do with your hands versus what your arm and sleeve are doing. So think about what your arm and sleeve are doing and try to make the toy do that instead. Usually it's about the fact that the arm and sleeve are a more stable, steady bite surface for the puppy to target. And you're whipping the toy around like a maniac, um, trying to quote unquote, produce drive or whatever, trying to make the toy be the bunny and hop around when the puppy just wants to be able to target something and bite it. And then because I know you're in this world, get with those good decoys, you know, get with those good people who really train biting really well and ask them, ask them, why does the puppy redirect on me instead of the toy? And can I have better mechanics surrounding that to prevent it? So certainly best of luck. (laughs) Um, I don't think I have all the answers here. It's not my world. I have had bitey puppies. Rhea was actually an extremely bitey puppy. It's all about predict and prevent. It can't be about redirect. If If it's about redirect, it will become a reinforced pattern and a major problem. And then when it's in training, I mean, I've certainly had dogs bite me playing with toys and blaming them for that making that their responsibility is usually less effective than making it your responsibility and having presenting the toy in such a way that the puppy is unlikely to bite something else because the toy is the most attractive thing to bite. Best of luck, little little monsters, little alligators that you train. Okay, this one comes from Eve. The topic is not chasing deer and elk while hiking off lead. <laughs> of course, I feel like we talk about this about every other episode, but we will get into it again because if y'all are still asking, then y'all still don't know. And so I'm happy to keep talking about it. Eve writes, the behavior I want is notice, sense, sight, and orient or come to me. So that's Eve describing what they want the dog to do. Further, Eve writes, behavior I have is notice, body language intensifies, takes off running, and is too aroused to respond. <laughs> yes, very very different from what it is that you're after. Eve continues, she always comes back, but it's dangerous and scary. And I also, I don't want my puppy learning this behavior. I have very frequent deer grazing behind my back fence. So do have a way to practice, but need a plan. Or maybe I give up on my older girl and focus on the puppy. I've heard you talk about training this, but need some specifics. So Eve, for your old dog, your older dog that has this as an established behavior pattern, you need to work with a trainer who specifically works with this issue because now it's an established issue. And what I'm going to tell you on this episode is not going to fix it for your puppy. You need to foster so much pay attention to me around the deer, deer mean, come to me, get the stuff. It's not exciting. You never chase deer. So that's number one, tons and tons and tons of engagement, not just around the deer. If you go out and you're like, we're going to work on this. Every time there's deer here, you will fail. 
do it every day, do it several times a day. And I don't care if there's deer there or not. So constant, constant high levels of engagement with you is what we would want to be fostering in the puppy and never allow the puppy to run off chasing deer because the adult dog did it. So I wouldn't be walking these dogs together at all because I don't want my puppy to ever learn that that's an option, that that's something that's on the table. And again, for your adult dog, I'd be working with somebody who specifically works on this issue frequently. With your puppy, it's tons of engagement, tons of recall work, and then preventing the issue from ever, ever happening. And you'll be surprised. Here's the thing. No, everybody's like, how do I know they're not going to chase? Well, you don't, but they show you whether or not your training is good the second that they have an opportunity. So go back to the recalls episode, do that stuff religiously with the puppy. When there are deer grazing, go out and do a big scatter feed and have the puppy also graze near the deer. Don't do a bunch of recalls off the deer. Don't make the deer exciting. Just go out and do a big scatter feed. We are just eating kibble in the grass as the deer also eat their grass. And we're all just here existing together. And anytime you come to me and orient to me, I'm going to give you better food than what's in the grass. Lots and lots of just pay attention to me out in the real world. The choice to stay with you is about a huge reinforcement history. It's not about learning. I just don't chase deer. So hopefully that helps Eve. Best of luck. Okay. Next one is from Jen who writes, how do you address puppy teenager urination during greetings, especially with regards to greeting people new or familiar? This is not a problem I'm dealing with, but it came up in conversation with some training friends and it got me curious to hear your thoughts about it in general. So I ignore it. Um, if it's a puppy, it's, if it's a young dog, basically, if it is when they're tiny babies, they just don't have any bladder control. They get excited. They release it. They get more bladder control as they get older. And it, it just dissipates over time. If this is an adult dog who urinates during greetings, then I would be working on this dog's discomfort about the greetings. The dog is, has way too many feelings to be an adult around those things. So I would treat it like any other, like treat it like a, like a fearful behavior, like treat it as though it's a shy dog and approach it that way. Um, if it's an adult. It's usually not though. It's usually a puppy or a teen. And if you just keep ignoring it and work on low key, not exciting greetings, it'll go away. Okay. And the last one comes from Kate. Any thoughts on a 14 month old Sheltie who seems to like recalls from a distance so much that he will go to spots or spots similar to where I have recalled him in the past, either for practice or not, just to get me to do it again. He loves to run as fast as he can to me and then get his treat. He will trot to that spot and plop down, maybe roll around, then look at me. If I don't do anything, he just sits there, chews on a stick, rolls around more and seems to enjoy himself. Recently, I just let him do this for the majority of our decompression walk because I thought either he finds this relaxing, enjoyable, or he's waiting for me to recall him and I probably shouldn't do that. Have you ever experienced an issue with dogs trying to get recalled and pushing boundaries to make it happen? Am I reading too much into it? There are other times away from those previous recall spots where we are walking and he just doesn't want to follow me in the direction we need to go unless I toss treats the whole way or walk away far enough that he decides to follow. He's reinforced for catching up with me, which feels like teenage behavior. Okay. So Kate, your puppy is very smart. And yes, he's, he, I think has identified the chain of, if I get a certain distance, she calls me and I like it when she calls me. So it's time for you to be more clever than he is and shape the behavior that you want to see. So as he's kind of trotting out, call him then. Maybe he's five feet away and he's, he's trotting out to his spot. Call him then. Reinforce him then. Definitely don't 
toss treats to get him to follow you, go back to rewarding check-ins. Anytime he's near you, he should be fed. So if he's close to you, feed him, not if he's far away. And I would avoid calling him for the most part, if you can. See how far away you can get to him before he decides you're too far and he, he follows you, especially if you're in a safe area that you can do that and then pay him when he chooses to come up. So a little too much pay uh calling when he's super far away and not enough rewarding for just choosing to stay by is what i would say cute cute funny dog (laughs) thanks for your question all right everybody we'll catch you next week thanks for listening please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review if you'd like to support this podcast head over to patreon.com cogdogradio you might even hear me answer your question on the show for more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.